This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. You're finally at that hot new spot. The one your friends keep raving about. Sitting across from your date. It's going... Another round? Really well. And that dish you've been dying to try? Oh, it's headed your way. You can smell it. Hear it sizzling fresh off that skillet as it comes closer, closer, and served. Go ahead. Enjoy. After your phone sneaks a bite first. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. On August 25th, I'm the most brutal, vicious, ruthless champion that's ever been. The most anticipated original series is here. You may know Tyson. You're the heavyweight champion of the world, young, rich, and black. But do you know Mike? The minute you get too big, they gotta cut you down. Starring Trevante Rhodes. Um, I am Mike. And Harvey Keitel. They'll love you as much as they fear you. Now I'm really going to have some fun. Mike, series premiere August 25th, only on Hulu. Whitbread with a header. Alexander tries an instinctive volley. Oh, what a goal that is! That is one of the greatest goals you will ever see at Wembley from Gary Alexander to put Millwall level. And just look at these fans. They are going absolutely potty. You can say anything. Welcome, this is an edition of That Mill Podcast. This is a family special show. We are over the moon and excited like a couple of kids being given the keys to the sweet factory. Me and Omar have managed to secure, not only did we manage to get the author of the family book, Michael Calvin, um, we've managed to get hold of three Millwall governors, Millwall legends, Millwall players who um, we watched hours and hours of and enjoyed every minute of it. We're Really, really pleased to have with us uh, Robbo. We've got Gary Alexander and we've got Dunny with us. So, welcome and thank you very much for joining us, gents. Thank you very much. Good evening. So, let's, um, and obviously, I'm joined by Omar. Omar is here. Um, I suppose the first question is directed to you, Michael, is um, how did you, as a journalist, manage to pull it off by getting involved with Millwall? Well, like, think, like most things when you're a journo, it started with a piss-up. Um, we went to Vegas for the uh, 40th birthday for my brother. And uh, I shared a room there. It was sort of about four days of carnage with um, Alan Jacket, who was Kenny's older brother. You know, he played a bit himself, um, did quite a bit of stuff uh, in youth football, QPR, um, and this was about the time that Ken was betting in at Millwall and he was just giving me some tales about the club and the nature of the club and everything else. And I wanted to do a 
a sort of an inside the ropes type book um, for about four or five years previously. And, you know, as, as you mentioned there, uh, Mickey, the, 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 the problem with, um, you know, the football, the, the relationship between football and media, there's no trust and no respect really, to be honest. Um, but I thought I gave, I gave Ken a call when I got back and basically said, look, um, this is my, my thought. Um, I'd like to actually almost increase my education in football. You know, I've been around the game, even, even them for like, you know, nearly 30 years in terms of doing world cups and all that sort of stuff. And, um, but I, I wanted to actually try and understand one, what makes a, a club tick, but what actually uh, in being a footballer entails in many ways. And you can only do that by by actually working or seeing them work on a daily basis and understand the relationships and the priorities and everything else. So I said to Ken, look, um, I need complete access at the club um, to make this work. And I, to be honest, I thought, well, you tell me to do it. But he, he basically said, well, it took him about 20 seconds probably. And he thought, well, actually, he said, I think it actually might be quite good for the club to do something like this because of the sort of stereotype a stereotype view of the club. Uh, he said, well, I, you know, I'll have a word with the chief exec and I'll have a word with the owner and see where we go. And and both, you know, JB liked the idea um, and, um, and and Andy Ambler obviously saw the broader, you know, strategic issues, I suppose, but he, he, he went for it. And, you know, long story short, I turned up on the first day of pre-season training, you know, Herbert, that, that none of the guys had ever seen. So it was quite an interesting sort of introduction for me because obviously the moment I turned up, everyone's looking and thinking, well, who's this, who's this bloke, you know? Um, it's the new centre-off. Uh, yeah, right. I'm not, I'm not that good, mate, I tell you. Um, but, but frankly, um, so yeah, it, it went from there and it, it, it's, it was a fantastic experience for me. Um, it was my finishing school in football, if you like. I really got a great understanding and, you know, I had a great... Um, insight into the into the guys and the professionalism that that, that goes into a, a successful team but also like you know the the, the personal relationships I, th- I found it a really really fascinating um, experience and um you know the guys bought into it as well which i which i thought was fantastic you, were, you weren't really an author before that book where you you no no i was i've been chief sports writer of a few papers like the telegraph and times and i was a columnist on the mirror at the time um a sunday mirror so i had time, a lot of time to actually do stuff during a week um and um but i'd always you know i'd done a couple of books early on in my life but um this was the first one that really sort of established me as a as an author rather than a you know a newspaper guy i suppose um and i loved it because the great thing about doing a book is like if i'm if i'm a columnist on the paper i've got say a thousand words to actually express my opinion about something or give an insight into something in a book, you know, family was under a thousand words and, you know, you really get underneath the skin of it all and, and, and have some real depth with it. Um, and, you know, as I said, I, I found it a really, um, you know, a fantastic experience and, and it enabled me to build a reputation to, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, I've had I've written nine or ten books since then. So, and, and you know, thankfully they've been they've done pretty well. So, yeah, it was it was a, it was a it was a landmark for me in a, in a whole range of areas. So, coming on to obviously you three, we we'll go through you as you're looking. So, we we'll start with you, Robert. I mean, what was it like? I suppose really having um, the enemy is such the press, having access all areas. Um, to you and were you made aware of it before turning up for pre-season uh, not before pre-season no we kind of we kind of turned up um and I think Mike as his presence was throughout the season he was kind of there but kept himself very much in the background he was very much observing what was happening and could see what you know he was obviously building his like his view his story his his take on the season um but he never felt like um his uh you know, he never sort of overstepped the mark. He never felt like he really wanted to get involved or overstep areas that, that he didn't feel, you know, were going to help him with the book. And I think that it was, a, like I say, a real low-key presence. And, and it was almost one, I, th- I would say, amongst the players that would be like, in not in a sort of rude way, but like, oh, who's that? Oh, he's a, he's a journalist that, 
mates with the gaffer. Well, what's he what's he here for? Oh, he's writing a book about the season. And then I think the fact it probably showed the, the the kind of trust that we had in Kenny that, you know, if it had got that far and Kenny had invited someone to be part of our dressing room, part of our club, then pretty much as a team, that was good enough for us as players. Was it, what was your first views on, on it then, Gary? Uh, like Robbo says, uh, Mike was obviously there, but we, we sort of didn't notice him unless he pulled us to the side to have a conversation and things like that. But Kenny put his trust in him and... He went about his business pretty quietly, you know, and as he, as you said, when you read the book, it's a, it's a cracking story, but he sort of went unnoticed, but at the end of the day, he built relationships with the lads, and like he said there, he's still got relationships with the lads, you know, if we probably see each other now, we probably have a good conversation and roll back the years and have a chat and a laugh, and he'd he done a tremendous job in what he'd done, and allowing him, he might have become a member of staff as the season went on, because he was there so often. I suppose there's 11, 11 potential future books there as well. <laughs> so, well, I mean, ten, ten Dunny's have one already. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right. Dunny probably will be published. Some can't. Dunny probably <laughs> needs another one anyway. So yeah, I mean, what was your views then? Honestly, I I, I didn't notice for about six months that Mike Mike was there, and that is my honest opinion. And I just thought he was Kenny's mate, and I was too scared of saying anything. And then I realised I asked what 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 was uh what was he doing and it was like yeah he's writing a book and I thought oh brilliant okay okay I didn't realise that so I agree with Robbo but he was low key and, and, and distraction he, you'd never notice him he was just always in the background which is something you, you don't want as a footballer you don't want someone there you see all the time you never noticed he was there and I think that was credit to how, how he worked Mike it, it was in the background it weren't a distraction to us on a pitch or anything um, and after reading the book yeah you realise that how much he was actually listening yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's in, I always get asked, oh, wouldn't it have been fantastic if you could have had a, done a document, TV documentary on it uh, at that stage? But as I said, you know, if I'd have been in there and there'd been a TV camera on my shoulder or, you know, over my shoulder, there's no way on earth you'd have behaved naturally. And, you know, and I know this sounds really pervy, but what I always used to do was try and just stand inside the shower at the dressing, in the dressing room where I could actually see you guys... And, you know, you you're saving naturally. <laughs> Not and, while we're in the shower, this is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's... But it, it, and so, you know, uh, I... The one thing that I, I had on my mind all the time was, you know, I was in your place of work and, and you know, I had to respect that. And, um, you know, it was, it was a fantastic privilege for me as an outsider to come into the group and actually see the group and how it, how it sort of bonded together and everything else. And that was part of the of what I wanted to get across was how how a group of, of blokes actually spark off one another. You know, it's ups and downs, and uh, it is it, really I, I found it really fascinating in terms of team building. And also, it, what I also found really interesting was the fact that you know I work across sports, and when that book came out, there were people from different football clubs asking me about it, but also like, you know, Olympic athletes and stuff like that. They love the whole idea of a team being built. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that was a, a, a good team. What was built there through individuals, what were coming together. I mean, I'd done a show the other day with the 70, with a couple of players from the 79 team. And one thing what hit me from there was that he said that there was no superstars in the team. They were all together collectively. They were a fantastic team. Um, but there was no one person who was better than the next. It, it was literally when they gelled together, that's what produced the team. I mean, how was uh, my my thoughts? Obviously, there with knowing certain things within the club and whatnot was how was John with it all? Um, I mean, John would have probably took it on board, but I mean, John is very hands on to a degree. He likes to have a likes to have a chat. Um, Andy, I could see, would be more probably more professional and and look at the risks um, in case obviously anything was said. But I mean, how how was John's approach to it? Uh, well, I suppose he comes from you know the American culture, which actually is probably more open. Uh, you know, like for for instance, in in North American sport, in the NFL or baseball, NBA, journos come into the the locker room. You know, after about ten minutes, so it, he's much more, I suppose, attuned to the fact that you know, a writer or a journalist can actually come into a dressing room and report. He, he, he got it. You know, um, I think you know, there's, he's a fascinating guy. And, Absolutely. Um, 
uh, and you know it was interesting although you know, he, you know he's obviously you know north american businessman he actually really reflected the culture of the football club i thought you know that he's a guy who you know he's got he's very proud of his marines background you know a great great man for the flag and all that sort of stuff but he also i think he really identified with with millwall as a football club and as an institution as and as also as a community i thought that was really interesting um and when you think about it, you know, okay, he's a businessman, so he's probably made a few quid out of, out of owning Millwall, but he's also put a lot, a lot of money in. And I've, I've, uh, if you look at him, you know, a lot of Americans come into English football and they're quick buck merchants, really. And I think it's um, definitely not that. No, J, JB, I think, has been a fantastic um, asset for Millwall, and also, you know, he's he showed that. Um, in an age where people go into a club for probably not the right reasons, I think his, his heart's in the right place. And I, and, and I do, you know, there were some times where I saw him at games and he was so into it. It was fantastic. I loved it. Yeah, he always says um, that Kenny Jackett taught him about football, um, that he didn't really understand football or soccer, as he used to call it. But Gary, um, Gary uh, Kenny basically taught him all about football, so um, so yeah, I suppose it was. I suppose the the other question um, following on from there was, I mean, Kenny was only recent. Kenny was only really recently joined in there, wasn't he? he was only he's only still settling to a degree. Um, he'd been there what he'd been there what two years by then, I think. Is he? Probably, yeah, I mean, I think he came the season before, didn't he? Replaced Willie the season before, and then that was his first full. Or maybe his second full season, sorry, yeah. Yeah, I think it was the first full season, was it? Second one, because we lost in the playoffs the year before, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. Obviously, Mike came before the, for the winning playoff season. So, I mean, what was your first um, thoughts on, on Kenny Jackett coming? What, as players? Yeah. Um, personally, it was a weird one for me, because I knew Ken, I was like a, a schoolboy at Watford as a youngster. Right. Uh, Kenny was the... Um, Kenny was the scary youth team coach with stories of throwing T-urns over players and all this kind of kind of caper. So I kind of had come across him in a few training sessions and this, that and the other, but I didn't really know too much what to... Like, I didn't really work really closely with him, but I didn't know what, too much what to expect um, of him as a, as a sort of manager. Um, obviously, I'd kept an eye on him and seen how well he'd done at Swansea. Um, then obviously knew, coming from Man City, that... You know, what we were getting, it was, a, it was an excellent coach and an excellent football person. So I just think that at that time, we'd sort of been through Nigel Spackman, um, obviously Willie, and we, we were just crying out really there for, for someone to come, come sort of take us forward, really, get the group together. We'd had a, you know, a couple of years struggling away in League One, really, a, a place where we didn't really think we should have been as a club. And, and like I say, it was nice for Kenny to come in and, we were just desperate for someone to take us forward as a group, really. Nice to have someone who actually knew about football for a change. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I can say you that. I, that I can get away with that. So, I mean, what was your thoughts of Kenny joining then, Gary? No, again, uh, just going back to Robbo, obviously you knew Kenny had a had a good pass playing against his sides at Swansea and all that. New manager comes in, you obviously want to try and make your mark. You know, it wasn't when he came in, I, I don't think I scored a goal for Willie. I think I was on my goal drought, you know, and he, he gave me a few words and he just said, look, I, I know you can score goals. I put faith in you, put his arm around me in the following season. I think I started scoring goals, you know, so it was, uh, it was one of them. It was, it was, a, it was a change, but having not scored, you obviously fear and think he's going to have his own ideas. I could be on my way out here, you know, but it was a case of he put his arm, he put trust in me and he probably bought Possibly one of my better seasons out in me that season, seven, uh, eight and nine. What was your thoughts of the new manager then, Danny? Yeah, I agree with the boys. I, I think Millwall needed a Kenny Jacket sort of person to come in and, and, and sort of stabilise and bring his experience. Because like what I said, we had, we'd never had any settled managers at, at the time. Um, Kenny had the experience and, and I think Millwall needed that. And I think us as, as players um, about to come into our peak, we needed that. I think Kenny brought the best out of us and, and he gave us a different look into football, gave us a vision and he was like a, a teacher in a way at times. And I think we learned a lot from him. Did you, have, do you have more respect for a manager when when they've got um you know, when they've got history, when they when 
they've got history within within football rather than having someone who potentially isn't necessarily a well-known football face? Uh, I think maybe to start with, I would say so. I think it gets you your foot in the door. Um, like anything, maybe it might get you uh, an opportunity that maybe someone else might not get. But with you, listen, they're very streetwise football players and within a week, they'll sniff someone out. They know if they know their stuff, they know if they're bluffing. Do you know what I mean? All you want as a, as a footballer is you want to play, you want to feel like someone's going to make you a better player and you want to win ultimately. And then they're, they're the kind of three things that you would judge a manager on really. And even though you maybe work for some, some not so great managers, sometimes even if you're playing, you sort of, you don't mind the manager. Whereas over a period of time, like I say, you judge him on, are we going to win? Is he going to make me better? And am I playing? Otherwise, not really sort of, it's a tough one otherwise. Before, just before we, we get into some more of the book with Omar's got a load of questions he wants to put anyway, is that, I've been speaking to Michael a bit recently and, and a couple of things what you don't really do until, I suppose, until I, I, I was found on the board as well and, and you get that little bit more insight. You forget that you guys really are in an unsecured job, really. Um, you could lose your job for an injury. You could lose your job just because you're not performing or the manager changes or, or, or anything. The stress what that must have on you as individuals with the fact that you've got your families behind you, you've got kids in school, et cetera, et cetera. If a manager comes in and suddenly says, I don't want you here anymore, you're not part of my plans, and you suddenly get a move the other end of the country, um, or the only club that wants you is the other end of the country, the levels of stress what must be associated with playing football, what we all we see is on a Saturday afternoon or you know a Tuesday night of screaming your name and you know, loving that goal you scored or that tackle you've done. But how is it actually playing with that level of stress behind you of making sure that the mortgage is paid, etc.? I, I, I don't think it's easy. As you said, you, you've always got to worry and how many footballers in this country, somebody always wants your job, you know. And, and as we see, plenty of managers take players that they've had in the past with them. So we have to go and earn that right to make sure that manager wants us to be part of his squad, you know. And I think that side Kenny inherited... We was down the bottom of the league in seven and eight, was it? We was battling relegation when he came in. Um, and not a lot changed in seven or eight, but he put faith in us. And we believed in him. And we went from being a side what was struggling. Like Robbo said earlier, we shouldn't have been struggling. We believed we could have gone up that season. We didn't. We struggled for whatever reason. Um, and Kenny turned that around. And we, we believed in him, you know. And we, he put his faith into us and we put it back to him. And so to know that you've got that relationship with a manager is great. And... You know, probably as we go further on into the book and stories about being away, you know, he, he knew things that went on, but he was that clever a manager. He never had to use them and come back at us. He kept them until till promotion night and said he knew everything that went on, which was clever for me. I mean, what's your thoughts, Danny? Yeah, you're going back to your point, it is endless worry. You work so hard to get to an age of whatever it's, a pro at 18 and then to get your next contract to keep that contract and to stay fit. And it's an endless worry with football. And it really takes the real people with desire and determination to, to, to go again, to stick with it year in, year out. Because it is endless worry. You've got bills to pay. You, you become pro at, at 80, 90, and you get a nice car. And then two years later, that contract goes like that. And then you're thinking, have I played enough games? Have I been fit? Do I get another contract? Um, so it is an endless way for footballers in that. It's a stressful time. On the pitch, it might show that at times. But I think as us as players, that group of players, it, it, we all had something special with each other, um, which was about team spirit and, and togetherness. And, and I think Kenny brought that out of us. I think um, just a question about the book. Um, Michael calls you the governors. So obviously you lot were the leaders in the group in a sense. So when you read the book and he gave you the tag, what was your first impressions reading the book and what did you guys think, obviously getting the governor's tag, so to speak? Being called worse, could have been worse. <laughs> really been a crazy game or anything like that. The governor's is all right, we'll take that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, shows, it shows the leadership, I guess. Obviously you guys are, you know, you're the, you're the people that fans look to, you know, I suppose the three or four of you along with 4D, obviously, Neil Harris as well. I guess you guys were the kind of focal point for the club and the fans, if you guys are having a bad day, the fans might not be scared to let you guys know, for example. I guess, how did you kind of take it on yourselves to obviously go out there and kind of represent the club? We knew we knew what we had in that dressing room between probably seven, and seven, eight or nine of us in there, along with, with a few of the youngsters, what were mentioned in the uh, few of the younger players, a few of the younger players that would come through, come in. I think 
probably seven or eight as Robbo, Dunny, Framo, TC, 4D, you know, like if someone's having a bad time, we'd know how to get each other through and we had enough in that group to pull each other through, to allow us to have a bad game, to allow us to have a bad run, knowing that we would come out the other side. I think what we had as well was you had a group there who, who cared for each other, but also just you knew that you were going to walk on the pitch as someone that was going to work hard, as hard for you as you were going to work for them. I think that's what built the trust over time. I think obviously you see in teams that are losing teams or teams that are struggling, the players lose trust in each other and you know there's a bit of infighting. But I just think we knew as a group of the lads on and off the pitch that we kind of, you know, there was, there was like a bond there where we knew every time we stepped on the pitch what to expect from each other. But also there was that, that group, you know, that group togetherness off the pitch as well where we got each, on with each other as a group of lads as well. I mean, there's, there's one question for you, Robbo, which it's, it's probably a, folk, a folklore rumour to a degree, but it's one what, now you're here, I'd need to ask it, was there was a rumour that um, Harry Kane turned up, um, not obviously, I don't think it was this season, but, but when Harry Kane turned up, Harry Kane turned around and said that he's come to rescue your season. And there's a rumour that you basically took him for a walk around the training ground car park and told him that we don't do really big bollocks here. You need to just put your head down, do what you need to do, and, and everything would be all right. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I know, I'd, love, I'd love to say that that was, that was all of folklore. I'm happy to go along with the folklore, but yeah, no. <laughs> to be honest, Harry Kane came and I think Dunny would agree. We, you could just see what, a, what a, he had the great work ethic and he was a, he was a lovely, humble lad. And I never, I never heard of him or knew of him saying that. So if I had it done, I think a few of us would have maybe spoke to him, but you know, I wouldn't have expected that of Harry. And, and I think you saw him, what he did at Millwall when he was there, what a, you know, he would have quickly worked out for himself in training. I think the same sort of thing would have been in, in, the way we train and the way we had leaders and people and like Robbo, Gary and, and the Framo, they were leaders and they led by example. And, and, and I think without having to do a talk like that, you could do it on the training pitch by how we it trained. Was Framo, how we wasn't it? Framo hit someone in a tackle and said, welcome to me a wall, did he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. Isel McLeod, I think he was. He hit him in a tackle. Isel didn't like it. And he just he just stood above him and said, "Welcome to Millwall, mate." He don't like it. We'll see you later. I think the, less, the, the less said about the Isel McLeod episode, the better. <laughs> we'll come back to that one. Um, so, starting in the book, then the the pre-season obviously was um, a, a tour of Ireland, and it sounds as if some of the grounds there were were interesting. I mean. Um, for us, obviously, some of especially recent years, obviously, we've not been allowed out to um, pre-season uh, training games and, and whatnot for whatever reason. But how are pre-seasons and how are they looked upon um, from your side um, to playing? I think pre-seasons set, you know, I think they're a good week during pre-season. Otherwise, you know, a six-week pre-season sort of going into the training ground, the long kind of long running and slogs and you know the double sessions all day I think over over a six-week period I think by the time the season starts up you know it feels like a really long time um, so I think that they're really good to break it up get the lads together as a group um, normally play a couple of games but I think one of the as like one of the key things as well is normally you've probably got a couple of players in over the summer maybe a couple of left so it's the kind of forming of a, of a new group moving forward ready for the new season um, and you know that first pre-season trip is one where you do some intent, a lot of intense work. But normally at the end you'll get a night out as well. And I think that over the course of a season, that that kind of week together really forms the bond that are going to carry you through a you know a long hard English season. What struck me about pre-season was was exactly it goes back to you know the earlier question about insecurities where you had guys there, um, well in particular too, Danny Spiller and uh, and Danny Sender who had been released, but they basically came back to train again just on the hope that they'd get a contract. And, um, you know, you, you get an understanding of the, of, the, of the brutality of it. When, like, so, for instance, Danny, Danny Spiller, you know, season pro, I think it was 14 seasons, something like that. He, did, he wasn't picked in the first bulwark of the season. And everyone knew on the training ground that that was probably him done. And, and as it happened, it was, you know, he had his, he had his pasta and then went home and that was it. Uh, and equally with, with Danny Sender, you know, coming back from a, you know, a bad injury. And I can remember the testimonial game for Sads where he came on as a second half sub, went up for a ball, I think with Aladier, 
came down badly, awkwardly, blew his um, Achilles wide apart. And that was pretty much, you know, game, set and match. And the one thing that, that again, that really struck me in, in that dressing room afterwards, um, Danny was uh, in Bobby Bachik's room, which is, you know, as the guys know, is just off, you know, just off to the to the right. And he was lying there waiting for an ambulance. And he was obviously in pain. And the guys came in and uh, specifically uh, Neil just went up to him and, and just kissed him very gently on the head. And I just thought, wow, you know, that's such a moment of tenderness. And um, that, that, that really took me by surprise. But that shows you that, that pre-season, you know, you know, that, you know, you know, Jack Smith came in and basically I asked him, you know, how we, how we were getting on and basically said, look, I'm going to stay here until they tell me to fuck off. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a, it's, the pre-season is the time where you really see that insecurity in action, I suppose. I mean, this preseason. I mean, you're obviously playing teams that aren't necessarily the you know great teams as such. They're more obviously to test you. But I mean, what were the teams like you played in Ireland? Your views when you turn up? Because some of the pictures were hard and fast, weren't they? They were just pretty much like we, playing. We on used the to play Shelbourne, didn't we? Shelbourne mm. every year, which is I think that was during their season as well. So they was probably a good few weeks ahead of us. You know, like we probably just come back off our break. Shelbourne were 35 games into the season, however many games they play, you know, so they were probably slightly fitter, which made it obviously tougher. But they was always competitive games. They want to they wanna catch the eye as well. It's a chance for them to move to England, you know, if they go and catch the eye. So, so looking obviously at pre-season, we had a few players come in after Wembley, the year before, obviously, when we lost to Scunthorpe. We won't talk about that one. But um, we had like Steve Morrison come in, Danny Schofield, Jack Smith, even Dan Ward joined, I think, in September, the start of the season. What was obviously your first impressions? Obviously, Dan Ward, obviously, some of you played him before, but what was the feeling in the club when you see these signings? Is it kind of looking at them on the first day of pre-season going, can they, can they do it here? Do you judge them within the first minute or what was the first impression, really? Yeah, I think that, um, obviously, we knew Wardy quite well, didn't we, Danny, me and you, especially, in, and Gaz, you've probably seen him play at Millwall a few times, haven't you, over the, over the years and against him. Um, so we knew what we were getting with Wardy, and I just thought he was an excellent signing, really, for us to get him at that time. And um, what good player he was! I thought it was a, it was a really good signing from Kenny, um, and probably one one we needed as a group. But um, Morrow was one of those. Obviously, he came from Stevenage. Um, he took a while to settle. Um, I would say I think it took a while to to find his feet uh, both on and off the pitch. I think the step up to to maybe the prof- like to obviously a couple of leagues was was tough for him a little bit to start with and. I think it wasn't until the MK Dons game really that he, he obviously scored in those in that game, didn't he? I think he scored the winner late on. Um, that was the time that really set him set him going. But up until that point, he sort of struggled. Um, Scully, I knew, was a really good technical player. We played against him a few times over the years, but I didn't know loads about him. But I knew he was really good technically, and obviously that that showed him what he did for us. Um, and yeah, I just think all good signings as well. You know, sometimes you look at it and think, did we? Maybe necessarily need another, you know, another centre forward. Um, at the time, we obviously had Gary, had, had Neil, um, but you know, Kenny strengthened the group again. It wasn't one where the club had sort of rested on its laurels. We we sort of brought a freshness to the group, added one or two, like you say, three or four new good faces that that were going to make the group even stronger, and that obviously gave us the belief to to go again the following year. So I mean, just... Gary, I mean, from your point of view, when Morrow comes in, are you thinking someone's going to take your spot, or how do you kind of? yourself is that a different challenge or no, to, to be fair having played football from 17 that, that's the world we live in it's, it's a tough it's a tough place people will always come and take your job you know that's the that's the reality of football if someone comes in they're there to take your job as we said managers sometimes see other players as as your place but it's about toughening yourself up and going I'm ready for this fight you know uh, I probably didn't get to battle for that spot as much as I like because I, I got quite a bad injury that season which was obviously disappointing for myself but on the other hand, we had such a strong group. I felt like I was part of that like, promotion team from start to finish, you know. And uh, it is difficult when someone comes in, but I'm not that sort of character to sit down and go, yeah, I'll roll over, you can take my position. I- I'm going to fight for that position. And and I wish I could have fought for that position a little bit more, but injury prevented that. So uh, that that was that was for me a centre-forward coming in, you know. But I had that for many a year, people coming to, you get people signing players, spending 100000 200000 to come and take your place. But you have to get that mentality installed that, you know what, I've got the shirt, I'm keeping the shirt, he ain't better than me. You had that same mentality though, didn't you, Dan? When, whenever it looked as if there was potential that 
you possibly were under pressure. You just you just changed and, and become re sort of reborn, re, rebirthed yourself, really, didn't you? you? You suddenly come back on it again. Kenny, knew, he liked competition, Kenny, and he and, he, and certain people. Um, when I was first there uh, many years ago, Kenny, well, when Kenny first arrived there, you've been there so long, you think you're, you think you cracked it, you think you're, you, you, you're untouchable. And Kenny changed that with me. Um, I, I, was, I was told I was no longer wanting these plans um, at the end of that season. And it was only that season that Danny Sender got injured on his Achilles and I went away that summer and it changed my thinking. And I think Kenny, uh, and, that, and that's, that's credit to Kenny, even when I was there with Kenny, you'd have Adam Smith and I think he brought Ryan Fredericks in, he brought right back in, different right backs. Uh, he always wanted to offer something a little bit different, someone who can ball carry. That weren't really me. I was just more of a like, like smash, stick in the channel sort of player. Um, so, yeah, he liked competition, Kenny. He did bring players in. Um, but I think that did give the best out of me because I like when I'm in, I'm in doubt and people doubt me. That's when I rise to my best. I mean, did... coming through. Yeah. yeah. I'm great, mate. Yeah, all good. Sorry, I just had to let my German Shepherd... You've gone toilet? No. I've got a great big German Shepherd who can force the door open and then when it's shut back, she's stupid enough to not realise how to get it back open again because I put something in front of it to stop hearing the kids, but she's forced in and then couldn't get out. So, um, <laughs> yeah, she might be a great big German Shepherd weighing in about 40 kilo, but she's like a little lap dog. Wherever I go, she sits next to me wherever I go. And, you know, she's up here and she thinks, well, I'm bored now, so I'm going, so she just disappeared. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, pre-season out of the way, obviously, the, the, the training sessions. I mean, what were the training sessions like with, with Kenny then? I mean, were they intense? Were they hard? I mean, how did you find the training session? I mean, the, the reason I asked him is obviously there's a bit in the, in the bit where, he's, he's talk, where Michael talks about the, the training coming up. And it's just really, I thought, a good point to move forward and and see, obviously, what the training regimes are. Because us, we just watch you on a Saturday. We've got no idea if you train, you know, two hours a day or one hour a day or what it is. So just trying to get a bit of an insight. You could, you could pretty much read Kenny's week. He was very structured, very organised. That's another thing I, I found quite good. Um, you knew where you were at, really. You knew what, what to kind of expect on every, any given day. Normally, a, a Monday, if you'd played, it'd be a recovery day. Those lads that hadn't played would do a, a more intense session. Tuesday would be your, your real working day and, and quite often Kenny wouldn't be there on a, on a Monday. He'd probably watch training from afar um, just to take in the lads' approach, the lads' attitude for those that weren't playing necessarily. Um, and then on a Tuesday, it'd be a more intense day. Joe, Joe would normally take that and Kenny quite often would be in on a Tuesday. He'd often either be watching a game or he'd have other things to do. And I think that was, and that was definitely, um, you know, a, a decision he made consciously. He, he, I think he knew he didn't want the lads to hear his voice all the time. We'd be off on a Wednesday to recover from the more physical session on a Tuesday. And then by, by a Thursday, it'd be a shape, a shape session where we'd work at our team for the weekend, our attacking play, our defensive play, how he wanted us to go about it. And then, and then we'd normally finish that with like a crossing and finishing thing where he wanted more goals from the defenders, more goals from the centre forwards in terms of scoring from crosses and corners. And we'd spend about 15 minutes doing that after every Thursday session. Friday was a small-sided game ahead of, you know, or an 8v8 ahead of the weekend. And like I say, when you hadn't heard his voice up until the Thursday, when you heard his voice taking that shape session on the Thursday, I think the lads would really be on it and really be at the session. Um, I think I think Dunny injured a few 18-year-olds' careers like every every Thursday. You know, it's showing what his, uh, his studs look like every Thursday. Oh, I, I hated it. He'd get, he'd get a, night, like a 16-year-old, like, quick, strong, and he'd just feed him balls, feed him balls to get at me. And I think you know, after a couple, I, 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 I'm going to have to just let, leave one on here. It, 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 was, it was tough, but it, it get the best out of you. And like you said, he said, his weeks were structured. And if he was in a, depending what mood he was in, would, would be the week. Some weeks he'd, he'd, throw, he'd throw something in, like a, a pyramid run, like a really tough run we'd have to do out, out of nothing. You weren't expecting it. He was, um, he liked the body fat, he liked fitness. And if he ever thought that was, that was a playing a part in your performance, then he would look to correct that very quickly. Um, Kenny was like that. He was the ultimate professional. He wanted to, everyone to be at their best day in, day out. Um, and he knew if he weren't, and, and he had a clever way of showing that at times. How was Kenny as a whole? Because there's a lot of rumours about and whatnot that Kenny is a is a um, a very fiery um, personality kind of person. I mean, was he was he you know mild mannered, or, or if you fucked up, he was 
it fucking destroy you. <laughs> oh, you know yeah, about it. Yeah, I think he's clever, Kenny. I think yeah. he, he knew when to do it. He knew when not to do it. He knew when to say he knew. As I said before, he, he knew things that we got up to as a squad and things like that, but he never used it unless he had to, and very rarely did he have to use it. He had a way about him of us showing him respect, him showing us respect, and we got on fine like that. And as I said, he turned the team around what was battling relegation, added a few faces and turned it into a promotion side, you know, just from being pretty clever in, in how he worked. I mean, how, uh, you come from, obviously, like we said, because you won't go into too much detail, you come from uh, a playoff final, which unfortunately we lost. Um, how do you pick yourself up ready to go in the next season after after that um, that drop, you know, that that moral um, drop? How, how do you pick yourself up and, and go again? I think that's football. Though. I think it, uh, the next season comes around. You've got to get going again. And, and like you say, though, we didn't particularly start very quick that following season. I think there was a little bit of a hangover, even if it wasn't kind of, um, we didn't really realise it consciously as a group. It took a little while. Like we said, there was a few new faces coming in um, that took a little while to, to find that winning, like that winning pattern, those winning partnerships on the pitch. And it took a little while. But I think what you see with Kenny is that he's constantly watching, constantly assessing. And he, he he just has a way of knowing what his team needs to get it right. And I think that what was even shrewder was his signings in, in January. I think once we brought Liam Trotter in on that January, I think, like I say, we were about 20-odd points behind Leeds in that January. But by the end of the season, we just missed out on the last day to, to Pippenham for second place. Um, just because he knew we just needed that little bit more physicality in there, perhaps in that midfield. And brought in Trotts and then the, the, the team just seemed to find its, find its formula, obviously, with Steve Morrison finding his feet as well. I think that just kind of, it really clicked into gear. Liam Trotter never really found his place at Millwall, though, did he? As a as Not a player, fans. I don't think he found it amongst the fans, did he? Um, <laughs> no. but, which, which I think sometimes they took that kind of languid body body language, that kind of languid style that he had, and and maybe mis maybe mistook that for a lack of effort. But I, I can honestly say he was someone that did care and someone that did did train and work hard. And even even though perhaps he was probably a bit more bit more quiet in his approach and a bit more. Like I say, maybe Dink wasn't as uh, wouldn't emotionally show his feelings as much as maybe other players, or or really show his kind of middle care. But he, he genuinely cared, and he and he genuinely worked hard for the club. I, I, I think fans think that he was possibly played not in his in his right position um, at Millwall when he went to other clubs. He seemed to perform better in different positions. What would you say is better? It depends what you think. It well, I thought he always played either centre midfield or in that 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 role just behind the striker. I'm not really sure what where else you'd sort of see, see him. We didn't see him really as an 8 or 11 because he, he had that sort of lazy style about him. But yeah. we see him every day, obviously. And he had the quality to be in amongst our group. He had, the lads respected him as a player, as a person, you know, and he was a top boy. And like Robbo said, he was brought in at the right time to give us that final push. And he did, although it didn't come across to the fans that he was that player we needed. He, he probably was. I mean, the thing is with, with Millwall fans is we are different to probably most other clubs. I, I suppose really the only similar club maybe is Portsmouth, who, who Robbo's paid for. We're, you know, we're very similar to those sort of fans, but we don't, we don't necessarily always give people um, the length of time they need to bed in. Would you say? I think they just got to earn your, they've got to earn your respect ultimately, don't you? And I think you know, coming to Mill, you've got to win their respect in your performances. Um, they want to show that you care for the for the shirt and for the club, and it's a club that you know. There's a real strong unity there, and I think maybe coming back to where we started this conversation as well, that that was what was quite nice about Mike coming in. It's think like I've seen yourself, Danny and Gaz. All like we've been, me and Danny have been in Millwall quite a while. Gaz obviously supported Millwall as a lad growing up, and we all knew what what good people were at Millwall and how much the people worked for the club. You know, the people behind the scenes that you see, like the kit man Adrian, his son Jack. You've got Dino up doing the commentary and. Mark Cole used to work in the offices and all the people, the ticketing staff, and how much, actually, there was a lot of really good people there who cared about the club. And I think that was quite nice for us, thinking everyone maybe had this image of Millwall from the outside looking in. But actually, when you get inside it, you realise what, you know, the people there work hard for that club and care, you know, a lot about it and do a lot of good things for it. Totally agree. I mean, Veronica and Colin, they've been there 30 odd years and, and yeah. that club probably couldn't function without them too. The stuff they do behind the scenes is 
is second to none, really. They are. And, Eve, and Yvonne as well. You probably yeah. wouldn't even know, you know, a lot of what she did. As well, Wairi, hopefully she hears this, but thanks for looking after mum and dad, like, during this COVID. She's been around my mum and dad's house every uh, Thursday, dropping off shopping and everything, uh, lives across the road. So I can't thank her enough, you know, like, for the three months she looked after mum and dad. I saw that Adrian um, um, buried his mum today as well, didn't he, bless? He lost his mum for all of this. So, yeah, and unfortunately he had to watch it on uh, on video stream. So, uh, yeah, rest in peace to your mum there, Adrian. But, again, he's he's been here for years. He's uh, he, he, There are the internal workings of the club have been there for years, haven't they? Um, the, the You know, the, the CEOs and the... The managers and whatnot change, but it's the fundamentals part of of that backroom staff and Millwall, the, the people who day to day running, um, are, are pretty much all what Millwall's about, isn't it? I think, I think like Robbo says, you've only got to look how many players return. You know, like you go to a home game and you can see seven, eight, nine, ten ex players all at the game, and that, how many work behind the scenes? You know, you've got Jimmy Carter, but Les Briley, you've got ex players working behind the scenes, but you also get so many players on any opportunity they return to watch Millwall play, you know, I think because they're made so welcome by all them staff at work. We've named, we've probably named most of them, but all them staff make, make it happen behind the scenes. And as Robbo said, you don't see that from the outside world, how close Nick Millwall actually is. No, no. And to be fair, I never really saw it until I was found on the board. And then you see, you know, you get closer in um, and you see, I mean, you know, I got closer to Neil and people like that where you actually see the real person rather than, possibly this cartoon image of what you get when you go watch it on a Saturday afternoon um, and watch an hour and a half of it, you know, the 90 minutes. It, it's it's a different perception, especially on some of the players and whatnot. So, I mean, on that season, as you said a minute ago, Paul, that it, it started off rather um, slowly as such. There was a couple of wins. You had a, a couple of decent wins in there. But would you say it's probably around the the Yeovil time, Yeovil um, or Tranmere, where the season started to go in the right way. Yeah, we got John Barnes to sack, didn't we, when he was the Tranmere manager, done him 5-0, didn't we? I think that yeah. sticks my mind a little bit. So, um, But yeah, it was that kind of turning point for you guys, you reckon, around that time of year? I think so. Even still up until Christmas, I feel I still think we sort of started a little bit. Like I say, I think the MK Dons, when, when Morrow scored to win 3-2, I think that was a that was an important game for him personally. Um, and then even up until Christmas, it was still a little bit, you know, we sort of felt like we had the potential. Like you say, we put in some really good performances, some really good results, but then maybe we wouldn't back it up the following week. Um, and that's what we could really do, sort of moving January onwards, really. Um, we go back... The Charlton game as well, just maybe... I was just about to read that, yeah. 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 I mean, obviously to us, we don't... I suppose as fans, we don't necessarily, necessarily see them as massive rivals as such, but we do see them as an easy six points. I mean... How, how is it for you playing? Obviously, we've we've got the West Ham there at the beginning. We can go back to that. But I mean, how is it playing um, against rivals? Obviously, when you're football players. But I mean, how do you approach that? I mean, does it? it do you have a, a different effort that you need to win it? I think they're the games we look forward to, like straight away. As soon as the season comes out, you look for your biggest fixtures, and obviously your local derbies. Your Charlton, your West Ham for Millwall are massive games for players. As you said there, maybe Charlton not so big for the fans, but for players, I think it's the South London derby. And it, it means so much, you know, uh, to, to have that uh, have that one over your rivals. You know, it, it is what it is. It's the fixtures you look out for straight away as a Millwall player, Charlton. When we got West Ham, when we got Charlton, you know, they're the big games you look for. And uh, as you said, like the result there away at Charlton, probably I was injured at the time I was in there, but what a day that was, you know. Didn't do us justice that day, I think, wasn't it? Uh, Abdu got sent off, didn't he, early on after we went two up and probably the better team up to that point, weren't we? Yeah, we went two no up, didn't we? I think went two yeah. no up, started on fire, didn't we? And then, yeah, Jimmy got sent off and he got rescinded that one as well, didn't it? So he got lost. So, yeah. So, yeah. But what was good that, obviously, that year, Charlton were up there with us, weren't they, as well? Um, and obviously, Swindon just got in the way of maybe Charlton, Millwall, Wembley as well in the player final, didn't they? I, was, I was, remember thinking that at the time, but. They were they were great games. I mean, we hadn't played Charlton for quite a few years. They'd obviously been in the, the Premier League, hadn't they? And then that, I think that was the first real opportunity we had for them coming down and yeah. playing on our division. We hadn't played them for a long time, so I just loved the way the fans pack out that whole stand behind the goal. Um, there is a different there is a different feel to that week to that game, uh, absolutely. And the lads do feel that. I think you feel that as a group, and you feel that individually. And there is a there is a definite buzz when you've got a derby coming up at the end of the week. 
Do you I mean, need to remind players, like, for example, if you've got players that are not from Millwall, not from the area, do you need to tell them this is a big game coming up or is everyone aware of it? Or what's that kind of like for you guys? Again, I think you've only got to look at sort of a Jimmy Abdu who came from obviously Plymouth being French. He, he learned the Millwall way pretty quickly. You know, I think when you're at the club, you learn the way and you start to know who, these, who the rivals are and the big games coming up where you're going to have three, four, five thousand fans backing you. I mean, what was it? Obviously, when we played West Ham, we obviously we lost against West Ham. But I mean, that night was pure venom. I mean, how is that playing in those situations for for you as players? You could you could sense that it before you went out on. Like you could sense it. The build up to it is, is, is massive, but you can sense it in the in the in the tunnel before you go out. And, and the ref says, if if you score, don't celebrate. So you knew you knew how, how, how volatile them. Like you said, vicious the word. Even when you were coming into the grounds of West Ham that night, and I think we were, was it that night we was getting pelters, and it was, it was, it was. I mean, you're driving through. Yeah, they were all in Green Street when they all ran the market. Green Street and and everywhere, and it, it, oh, and and the hatred and and the build up to it, it, it's brilliant. But it's like you can see that and that energy in the crowd and and the whole rivalry between the two, especially West Ham and 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 likes of Leeds. but yeah, that night was 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 a night we all never played in something like that. Where uh, I think they scored a late on. We scored early on with Neil Harris, I think, and, yeah. and they scored late, late, late on. And I think they um, equalised after the trouble, didn't they? They pitch invades, and then uh, they equalised not long after that, didn't they? Probably took us out our rhythm a little bit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean three minutes to go, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. eighty-three. Eighty-three. Yeah, eighty-three. Zavron Hines equalised late on, didn't he? It was a little cold. Yeah. Do you remember on that night, as 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 we're going past the, that, they they basically uh, protected the Bobby Moore statue, and I, was it Jack, the the bus driver, was talking about the windows. He said, "Yeah, yeah, the windows windows are brick proof, but they're not bulletproof." And I thought, "Hang on, <laughs> but you know, I I saw that uh, that funny enough that game." Um, showed me you know just the intensity of all that you know because what i did i got off the bus and and walked down the you know when when you guys were in the dressing room i actually went down into into green street and saw it all begin to kick off and i actually watched the first half in the away section and it was carnage and um that was the first time i really understood how visceral that whole rivalry was but equally to turn that on its head you know you mentioned charlton earlier on that that 4-0 against Charlton was the first time I've seen players terrified at the den, where I can remember seeing Phil Parkinson earlier that week. Um, uh, we had a, it was a game at Charl- uh, sorry at uh, Carlisle on the Tuesday night, and he was up there uh, doing a scouting mission, and he looked like death warmed up. He was grey, he was knackered, he was going to have to get back into his car, he drove back to the training ground, slept in his car, you know, got there at four o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. And I can remember him shepherding his team out of the of that little dressing room, the away dressing room. And uh, he he called each of his players by their by their Christian name, you know, good, you know, good luck, Fred, or whatever. And he was he was trying to be too casual. And you looked at the eyes of some of those players, and you guys must have seen it when you, you know, because you're so close to the the, the opponents. You've got uh, forty at the back giving it some about, you know, their hours and all that sort of stuff in that big basso profundo voice. Um, and I just saw them there, and I just thought, you know, this game's over. And that was literally before we left the tunnel, you know. And that, on the other hand, is is the positive side of of, of, of Millwall fans, you know. They are a force of nature when you've got them on your side. As a journalist going into this, you did you already have a preconceived image of Millwall? And then obviously a few games in when we got West, you know, when we played West Ham, was it obviously with the cup we got it in the cup? Were you already thinking that this is going to be a, a moody environment, or, or were you thinking that a lot of it's just myth? Uh, t- to be honest, I you know I wanted to find out is is part of it. Um, you know, I think the the thing about you know Millwall stories is that they're too easy to write. Bad journalists find it very easy <clears throat> to write. You know, lazy stories basically. You know, I'm not saying you know there are certain elements that you look at and it makes you cringe. To be honest, but in terms of 
a fan base and what what they represent. You know, they are their, you know, they are close to their community. I think the team, you know, that team, you know, your your team guys was so close to the community, and it's it's still remembered. You know, as that you know, we're ten years on now, but that team's still remembered, and it's remembered really fondly. And um, you know, it's interesting also that the culture of the club, I think, produces good managers and coaches. Because if you think about it, you know, Sean Dyche had his time there. And if, if you think about Sean's great mantra, I've done quite a lot of work with Sean recently up at Burnley. And his, you know, his mantra is, you know, maximum effort is the minimum expectation. And that's straight out of the Millwall playbook, isn't it? And when you think of how many of you guys, you know, you've all, all, all three of you have, have moved on. You know, Framo would have been a very good coach, but he's gone back into the family business. You know, there's something about playing for Millwall which demands a certain type of character. And, you know, to, to your point, um, Gaz, you know, that's why so many players come back to the club because they feel a sense of belonging with it, you know? you. I mean, you're obviously a Millwall fan um, for and through, Gaz. And did you tell other players what, what the Millwall fan base expects? Because, I mean, there's a bit... I'm just trying to find the actual word now, but there's a bit in the book where Michael obviously speaks about Millwall being a unique club. It's it's very different, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, do you, did you explain what Millwall fans expect? Because we are a, a, a different breed of fan, really. I think like like Dunny's Robbo, they've been at Millwall for years, so they sort of learn learn that culture. But obviously, going in there, being being a fan, obviously going to watch watch like you were saying there. When we played West Ham that day, I'd been in the crowd years before when we played West Ham, so I sort of knew what to expect, you know. And it was it was one of them. And, but along the way, as you said, you might have the odd player what doesn't know what it means, but you give them the odd nudge, and you know you let them know. Hang on, it's West Ham today. This you could become a, a, a cult hero today. Do you know what I mean? Just by doing so, by smashing someone probably against West Ham, you could become a middle hero. You know, like it's one of them. So, but I think we had. Within that group, we had players who had been there years. We had players who had been there a couple of years who had grown into it. But your likes of Dunny, Robbo, mm-hmm. who've been there five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, sort of knew all about Millwall themselves. So there was there was a few of us in that dressing room who knew what it meant and knew what it meant and probably almost become fans themselves. They've been there that long. It's, yeah, it, I think the West Ham and then, uh, I think that season, obviously, unfortunately, with West Ham, but we obviously got the wins over Charlton and then obviously we done Leeds. Um, which again is is always um, a good game for the fans, um, and obviously probably a good game for you. I mean, travelling to away games. There's a bit in the book what I read earlier. I mean, I'm, I'm rereading the book again about three quarters of the way through. Is um, the stuff what you got up to? And the, there was a bit with um, Price where once he fell asleep, you um, everybody put stuff on him and put stuff in the. I mean. Out, Robo's laughing his face off it. I mean, out of the set of group you had, I mean, who were the jokers within the group and and what did you get up to? Obviously, if you can't say them fine. But I mean, what were some of the some of the tricks and, and, and um misdemeanors you probably got up to? Oh, Robert's probably still finding some in his hair, isn't he? Still now. <laughs> it, was, it was coffee stuff, wasn't it? Like <laughs> the stirrers and all that he says yeah, yeah. yeah we... his bed was always in the corridor on a Friday night away from us <laughs> no, like, moved his whole room out into the corridor every week and he still never had a time to do it <laughs> he'd be late for dinner every week get down meant to be there at 7 we'd get at 20 past he still didn't realise it was us what had moved him out of his bedroom <laughs> oh, it's just all the way through though listen throughout your career it's just it's almost like an extension of school to be honest you get you get 20 young lads together as a group, you know what it's like. You're going to be messing around, playing pranks. You've got a lot of time away from the pitch. It's almost sometimes like you've got all that time, all that build-up. Say you're playing on a Tuesday night, you're there all day Monday, stay in a hotel Tuesday, like Monday night, wait around Tuesday till you've got a game. So, like I say, you've got 20 young, youngish lads stuck together. There's going to be a, a few misdemeanours. And obviously, I think Gaz and Danny would be part of the two jokers. But I think even that season as a group, everyone kind of, kind of took their turn and everyone would uh, get up to their own, own little antics in their, in their own times. What about the likes of, um, sorry, what about the likes of, who don't get mentioned often, the likes of Scotty Barron, James Henry? I want to know what Ali Fusini was like. I always looked at him before he was a quality kind of character in the squad. I mean, that's from the outside. What were these kind of players like? 
Do you know who was one of the funniest people that Kenny brought in and he was one of the funniest characters was Mark Laird. I don't know if you boys remember Mark Laird. He was a character. Him and Grimes, two boys from Manchester, (laughs) two characters. They used to video each other on the uh, driving, pretending to be sleeping. <laughs> like they used to do all these mad stuff, and it was like that's when you realised you was a senior player and older when you had them lads coming through, and they were they were bringing a lot of the banter to themselves. Um, character Mark Laird was one of them. Yeah, as well. You had the you had the younger ones, like we said earlier. You had the younger ones, Lady Grimesy Alley, and you had the senior ones, but. They weren't scared to play the odd trick or throw it on us, you know, like uh, during their time, which was, we had to expect that, you know, or we knew something was coming if something could happen to them. And that was, that was where the spirit came from. We was all in together. And was there an initiation for new players? Yeah, you had to uh, sing a song, yeah. Uh, well, uh, That still goes on now though, doesn't it? Yeah, it still goes on. You have to get up. I think Robbo would ring the bell, like get the old spoon out as captain and announce a person in and get up there and sing, you know, but... That's one of the most scariest things I've ever done. I, I don't know. It's not the same nowadays. They're too good nowadays. No, no one, they're not like, they're not, nowadays they just sing. It's nothing to them. When we done it, Robbo, I was, I was nervous for, for weeks. I, I couldn't, I, 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 I was shaking. The way to Amarillo. <laughs> was, what song did you do then, guys? It's just the way to Amarillo. I was petrified. I, I only knew the verse. I didn't know the rest of the song, but I got voted through, so I was happy and moved on. But the finished that better than he did at Wembley. I tell you, <laughs> <he was laughs> <back with you. laughs> God, I'm, I'm just we were right behind it on the bench. That was some strike, flipping it. It was some strike, and and they still say that that was probably the best goal ever scored at Wembley. He was still telling the taxi driver in Vegas that year, Gaz, about his, about his goal. Gaz, I know you remember that, didn't you? Like, what about his miss? He was like, oh, I had, I had no reception driver. on my phone, so I couldn't even show him. <laughs> Do you still live on that then, I take it, now, even now? No, Dunny plays it when I go, when I press Dunny's doorbell, it comes on in his living room. So, <laughs> but, you know, so I can't get away from it, but it's, uh, no, the little ones, obviously, my little ones remind me, Rocco weren't born, but he's always trying to practice it and things like that, you know, so it, it's nice, but as you said, I'll, I'll swap that for a win all day. I mean, the other question, which I just, I'm looking for something in the book, but I've, I've sat there and just clicked through um, a bit there, which obviously through both of you. Referees. I mean, referees at the den. We always seem to get some choice referees. I mean, do you have any memories of uh, 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 a certain referee at the den? At the den that if we had him for the game, it was like, oh god, we're up against it now. Commentary, Robbo. You'd um, remember that story, wouldn't you? For ref at West Ham. Was it? Yeah. What when he, we scored from the corner and then they we, we scored we scored yeah. from the corner in a, in a season where I mean it was a, a goal was clear as day. Tony Craig, <laughs> we're over celebrating in the corner, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he's blowing his whistle. We're celebrating, and I think he just give up in the end, and he let them play it, and they went down and scored. And that was what I just thought then referees they they, they would they drive you mad. Who was that? Yeah, that uh, Andy Durso. What was he like as yeah, was, referee? Yeah, Durso. Uh, West Ham, wasn't it? He? he seemed to have a problem with anyone in a Milwaukee. But <laughs> we sort of had to manage that and just try and put that to one side and hope he gave us something. He give us a throw in the right way, we'd be happy. Who did I you? Think, I, I think you find you got two kinds. I think ever playing at Mill, I think you got to find the, the the kind of refs that just go with it and go with the crowd and kind of give you stuff. But in the main, I always got the feeling that. A lot of the times with refs coming to the den, they'd almost try and prove a point like, I can't be intimidated by this crowd. And it'd almost be like they'd go against obvious decisions to try and make themselves look like they were giving strong right decisions when actually that's what got more frustrating for me. You go away and more often than not, the the crowd would influence the ref. But the den, for some reason, they'd have it in their head and it'd almost be like a test for them, see if you can, do you know what I mean, stand up to this crowd. And that's what I would find, almost like they would make decisions that were blindingly obvious to us and... They give them the wrong way, and that, that's they're the only times I really got aggravated. You've been listening to part one of that Millwall podcast, the family book special, uh, with Gary Alexander, Paul Robinson, and Alan Dunn, and Michael Calvin. This was part one, part two will be following. Uh, shortly and if you have enjoyed the show please remember to subscribe favorite on your chosen podcast platform and that way it will come straight back into your player as soon as we release part two thank you very much for listening and hope you enjoyed the show if you have please do leave a review until next time thanks for tuning in 
This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. Hey, Chief, we got a damaged RV on its way to the OR. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of RV surgery. <laughs> Wait, are you promoting me? Congrats, Martinez. Doctor, that RV's flatlining. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of nursing. So you're just promoting everyone now? Yeah, kind of looks that way, doesn't it? When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates covered subject to policy terms. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.